Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we introduce you to Emily O'Meara, a startup consultant and public speaker. We talk positioning, open source, and what bad positioning can do to your community. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy. Everybody's favorite pseudoer, Brandon Johnson, is off this week, though he has been pretty busy over on his blog, open-tech.net. He'll be back in the studio with me for the next episode. Today, though, I sat down with Emily O'Meer, an amazing consultant and an open source proponent. Let's dive on in. This episode of the Pseudo Show is brought to you by none other than our friends over at Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can get started today for free by going to bitwarden.com DLN. Our favorite password manager just keeps getting better. Recently, Bitwarden announced Send, a secure way to send information directly with anyone. If you are a fan of Firefox Send, then you know the loss of functionality and security when Mozilla shut the service down. Well, now you don't have to look any further than Bitwarden. You can now encrypt passwords, financial or legal documents, or even code and send them without fear of interception. Send utilizes E2E AES 256-bit encryption and is available on all Bitwarden clients from WebVault to mobile and even CLI. Bitwarden just keeps getting better, and you can get started for free. When you see what an amazing platform Bitwarden is, you'll want to upgrade to the premium plan for just $10 a year. That's less than a dollar a month and includes the all-new Bitwarden Send. Head on over to bitwarden.com DLN to get started today for free. Brandon and I realized the other day that after 22 episodes, we haven't really taken the time to explain what it means for our show to be part of the Destination Linux Network, even though we say it every episode. The Destination Linux Network is a collection of creators, community, podcasts, and video content powered by Linux and open source. If you only subscribe to the Pseudo Show, you're missing out on so much amazing content. You can join the hosts of Hardware Addicts to discuss computers and technology news, and even get your selfie on in the camera corner. You can get your fill of weekly Linux GNU's with Michael Tunnell on This Week in Linux. For more content from all over the industry and community, tune in live every Sunday for Destination Linux, the flagship podcast of the network, to talk about software spotlights, exciting interviews, and great banter. These are just a few of the shows that the Destination Linux network has to offer. To get the full list of shows and to get subscribed, head on over to destinationlinux.network. And one last thing before we get into our interview. This show would not be possible without the support of our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. DigitalOcean is investing heavily into their marketplace offerings for their app platform. The app platform is the easiest way to build, deploy, and scale apps quickly with their fully managed solution. They handle the infrastructure, you worry about writing the code. Now, Dio offers up to three static sites for free in a world where your online presence is as much a part of your identity as it's almost essential to have a website for yourself, your business, and even your community. Now you can do it at no charge on the DigitalOcean app platform. You can create your own website using a static site generator like Hugo or Jekyll, add HTTPS, and even bring your own domain name for free. Need more sites or want support for additional languages like Node or Ruby? No problem. You can get the app platform basic plan for just $5 a month. Not entirely convinced? Then try their services for yourself by going to do.co slash dln. You can create an account and receive a $100 credit good for two months. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show. Today, I'm excited to introduce to all of you Emily O'Meara. She is a marketer, consultant, and a contributor to the Newstack, host of the Business Cloud Native podcast, and our guest on today's episode. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. 
It's a real pleasure. You're actually sent our way, I think, by Miss.io. Yep, that's exactly right. We had a great conversation with Chris just a couple of months back, and so we're excited to have you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. So we were kind of talking in the pre-show that you're well-traveled and, and quite the linguist. So how did you come about traveling so much? Good question. A lot of people, I'm sure I'm not the only one who spent their 20s doing kind of a lot of random stuff. And for me, that involved traveling a lot and actually not really traveling a lot. It uh, involved moving uh, a lot. I, I generally stayed places at least a year. And I'd always been interested in languages and always been interested in living abroad. So like I spent a year abroad in a year abroad in Switzerland when I was in high school when I was 15. And then, yeah, I spent a couple years in Spain. I spent, I actually did a graduate program in, in Paris. And yeah, I lived in China for a little while. Oh, wow. Studying Chinese. Yeah, I've, uh, just a little bits and pieces, but I've always been interested in languages and sort of intercultural relations. So yeah, it's actually, I've had some conversations with people about like digital nomad-ish lifestyles. And I don't actually consider what I did to be exactly a digital nomad because I wasn't like staying for three months and then moving somewhere else. So it's a little bit different, but certainly I've lived and worked in a fair number of places. Of course, and ironically, my fiance and I just bought a house no less than four miles away from where I grew up. So quite the opposite experience. <laughs> hey, when I moved back to my hometown, which is Portland, Oregon, I uh, rented a house that was a block away from my mom. So yeah, so you know, you know how I feel. My, my parents are about five minutes away. My grandparents are 10 minutes away. So it's, it's a nice awesome. tight little neighborhood. <laughs> yep. There are advantages to that too. So how did you get started in technology? Did that come from the travel or did the travel affect the technology or the, are the two just completely unrelated? Nah, I would probably say they're unrelated. Yeah, we all have like different compartments of our life and I, I definitely put those into different compartments. I, how did I get started with technology? So I guess the, the backstory is I started, I wanted to build a website and someone told me that I should use Drupal to do so, which is terrible advice because if you're... <laughs> <laughs> if you're not like, if this is the way that you're sort of starting to, you want to build a website and you have no experience, you don't know what you're doing, you should not use Drupal. You should use WordPress. But anyway, I did in fact succeed with Drupal, but it, it took a very long time. And, but I was, I was really interested in the, the sort of the, the ecosystem around Drupal, the open source community. I found that really fascinating. On the other hand, I did not go off and become a developer or an engineer. I am not very detail-oriented, which, yeah, not everybody likes to admit, but it's definitely true for me. I'm not very detail-oriented, and this is, I found anything related to code immensely frustrating for that reason. But I am interested in, like I said, you know, the open-source ecosystem. I think I have a sort of a cultural affinity for a lot of sort of engineering types. So the thing is, there's lots of ways to be involved with technology. And a lot of engineers and a lot of people that I work for are very detail-oriented and they need somebody who isn't, who's really good at seeing the big picture. And in fact, that's what I'm good at. Hmm. That's kind of the common misconception about getting involved with technology, even open source, is you have to be a developer or, or an engineer to, to be successful in the industry. In fact, longtime listeners of this show would know that 
I spent almost a decade as a systems administrator and only about two or three years ago did I realize that's not what I want to do with my life. And that's that's not a problem. That's that's okay. That's allowed. In fact, I'm starting to find myself between this show and between my day job focusing more and more on almost technical marketing, which falls right into your sweet spot. So you want to talk a little bit about uh, marketing and technology? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I, I started out then my my journey into the the tech industry started out as in marketing and as a marketing writer specifically. And this is, is really cool because communicating about technology and connecting technology to business issues, business needs, business problems, or even like larger technical problems uh, is something that a lot of technologists kind of struggle with. And yeah, that's kind of a stereotype. But there's truth to it. Like there, a lot of technologists struggle to communicate, like, why is this important? And it's, but it is really important to be able to communicate it. So that's that. And then also, um, you know, everybody can write, which is to say, like, you can write a shopping list, I can write a shopping list. And, uh, but there is a lot more to that, to doing effective marketing writing than being literate. Anyway, so that's kind of how I started in the, in the industry. And it's a really good thing to remember, you know, not everybody like you said, needs to be an engineer to be involved in the tech industry because there's all these other things that are really important skill sets, things including that I don't do or I don't do as much like public speaking or the looking at the big picture. Um, even stuff like sales is something that a lot of like real hardcore engineers feel extremely uncomfortable with. So that's how I got started. And yeah, for anyone listening, I want like little tidbits of encouragement if you're not an engineer and or if you're an engineer and you kind of hate engineering, like there are other ways <laughs> to stay involved. You're absolutely right. That is a surprisingly large percentage of our audience that are in a position because they had, like in my case, a, a career advisor in college who said you kind of have either the technology route or the manager route, but you can't do both. Or no one even told me about marketing or public speaking or anything. Those are things I just kind of fell into actually as, as a member of the open source community. Yeah, I actually think, so I'm not a salesperson, but I, I, I like sales. I think sales are really interesting. <laughs> and I think if somebody in college had sat me down and said, hey, Emily, did you know that you could go work for Intel and you could, you could be a salesperson? And, you know, that's a, that's a career path that exists. Like my life would have been different, but nobody did because that just wasn't, I don't know why nobody did. And it was not obvious to me at that time either. Yeah, that's that's kind of why I started the podcast. <laughs> you talked about an interest in the open source community. You were really drawn to the people. Your big push right now is consulting. How did the open source side of you and the marketing side of you, how did all these pieces come together to, to kind of put you in the place that you are now where you're consulting with, with startups, small, large companies, telling them how to interact with this? Well, I mean, if you've been in the business world your your entire career, this whole open source community thing, this free software thing is really strange to some people. How did all those pieces kind of come together to put you where you are today? Oh, that's a really good question. So first of all, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, for all the developers in the audience who just vomited when you said the word marketing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that that's a problem for a lot of, a lot of people. There is a certain amount of, of that in the open source community that like d marketing is dirty people tend often will say the same thing about sales. A lot of people fail to, to think or 
I, sh- I think refuse is the better word, refuse to think of anything related to promoting open source as marketing. For those people, if you're a maintainer of an open source project listening to this, I want you to remember that you are asking people for something valuable, which is their time. And if you have somebody contributing to your project, yes, they are not giving you money, but they are giving you time. And that is really valuable. And in fact, for, let's be honest, developers generally are fairly well paid. Their time is probably more valuable than 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Or or whatever, you know, a hundred bucks that they might pay for to download some program. So like just to consider that when you're thinking about like, oh no, marketing is dirty, I can't do that. No, you still have to make a you still have to convince somebody that your project is worthwhile. Uh, not only is it worthwhile just to download and use, but ultimately you want to build a community and you want people to also be contributing back and caring about it. And that's I mean, making somebody care about a project, it is a marketing exercise and you need to use a lot of the tools that you would be using if you were marketing a company, you know, something that you're going to be asking people to pay money for. Yeah, that's really good. Getting away from some from some of those stomach wrenching terms like sales and and marketing. Trust me, I get it as a, as a former systems administrator. I never thought I'd be selling uh, selling software. So. <laughs> so I totally understand where you're coming from and, and the wave of nausea that went through a percentage of our audience. You've kind of settled on a different term. You've come up with a, a way to kind of talk about how open source and the business world kind of fits in together, and that's positioning. So for those of us that, that are unlearned, <laughs> myself included, what exactly is positioning? Yeah, that's a good question. And so there's a lot of ways to, to address this. So Positioning, first of all, isn't actually really marketing. And also, I should note that for those developers in the audience, it's it's probably not an uncomfortable term for most people listening. But part of that is because positioning isn't a marketing term. It's not really a sales term. It is what I would call a business strategy term. So in my consulting, if the CMO comes to me and says, uh, we need help with positioning, I would say, great, that's awesome. Let's talk we're going to need the CEO to join our conversation because it's not something that the marketing person can own. It can't be just the marketing person. It's like a, it's an overall business strategy. In fact, I wouldn't even just say like, you know, we need to make sure the CEO joins our conversation. I would say we need to make sure that the chief product officer is part of this conversation, that whoever, you know, whether it's a CFO or whatever, whoever's doing sales, whoever's heading sales, who, that person needs to be part of this conversation because it's not just marketing. It's really a business strategy. So positioning is about what assumptions you create around your product if you have a paid product. Same thing if you have an open source project around your open source project. So uh, when you open up a readme file on an open source project, there is uh, what's often called called a mission statement. It's like one one sentence that if you have an open source project, that is where you want to communicate your positioning. You want to say what this what is this and who is it for? And the key is that you want the assumptions that you're creating in making that statement. What is this? Who is it for? You want those assumptions to be correct. So. You know, if you just think of like an everyday object, if I say this is a bicycle, you're going to make a certain assumption. If I say this is a bicycle for people who use wheelchairs, you have a totally different um, image in your mind. 
and you're laughing, you're like, I can't even imagine what that is. <laughs> Believe me, it is a thing. I, I did try and figure that out. <laughs> so if you say this is a family bicycle for families with six children, you are going to understand that this is not just, this is not the same as a, this is a bicycle for uh, Lance Armstrong. You want to create assumptions because there's a couple things that you don't want to happen. First of all, you don't want people to be like really surprised. You don't want to have to explain too much what your product is. So if you are having a sales conversation and you've created the correct assumptions, there's a whole number of questions that you don't have to answer because everybody understands them to be like this category of product is going to include XYZ features. We don't even have to ask if, if this is included. But the problem comes up when you, when you have positioning that isn't well aligned and your potential customer or your uh, you know, open source user, your open source user downloads your project based on your, your mission statement, expects it to do one thing or expects it to include like a certain integration or whatever, and it doesn't. Wah, wah. That, that person is not happy <laughs> and they're not going to become a contributor. They're not going to become an active community member. And it also, it's, it's a waste because it doesn't allow you to talk about whatever, whatever about your project or about your product is really special. So you want to use the, the limited amount of time that you have to connect with people, to drive home what is it about your thing that's really special. So positioning is, and I said, mentioned positioning is really core business strategy. That's because while it is sort of, we might say it's mostly marketing because there is a lot of like, how do we talk about this product? That's a marketing thing. It has implications for what types of features do we include? What types of features do we not include? If one of the values of our product is that it's really simple and easy to use, and somebody says, hey, let's add a uh, hundred new features that require like really complex configurations. No, no, you're going to say like, let's not do that. That's not going to add value to our, to our product. And it also obviously has some, a lot of sales implications, both for how you run a sales conversation, what's what you say during, during a sales conversation. I'm talking about products now. I know we're, uh, I, I'm trying to have, you know, one foot in open source and one, one foot in commercial product uh, land. But so for sales, you, you also have to think about like, who are you reaching out to and any outbound activities, but also what are you saying when you're talking to people? So this is something that could go really wrong really, really fast. Because if you make the wrong assumptions, you're going to attract a crowd that has no interest in whatever you're building. If you've made the assumptions that your, your customer is looking for a bicycle when actually they're looking for a helicopter, you're going to have some major issues so how, how can you tell, <laughs> and, and I'm going to take this right off your website because it made me laugh. How can I tell if as, as a business leader or if a, as an open source contributor, if my positioning just sucks, how do, how do I fix it? Right. How, or, or maybe, maybe back up a step and how, how do I know if my assumptions are wrong and then how do I fix it? So the first thing is there's like warning signs of, of bad positioning. So when I'm talking to somebody about positioning, my first question is, hey, what is your product or what is your project? What does it do? And uh, this is a test. Everybody's listening and thinking, oh, if I ever call up Emily, I'm going to know how to pass this test. <laughs> Th this is the, the fact is uh, often, often people come to me because they're really struggling with this. If it takes you more than one sentence to answer my question, 
uh, that's a warning sign of a positioning problem. So the first, really the first thing is just an inability to articulate what your product is and what it does. And sometimes, you know, it's just, you have a, the stuff I work on is often really complicated. Uh, there's going to be jargon involved and, and people just, they, they struggle to articulate it. And the problem is then you leave whoever it is you're talking to, you know, whether you're doing a presentation at a meetup for an open source project or you're pitching an investor for your, your product or whatever, you, you leave people confused. I work in a really niche space. And so I also like, if I'm confused by your description of what your product is or your project is, I'm not an engineer, but I, I work in such a niche space. I, I should be able to, to understand pretty immediately what it is. So if I don't understand it, that's not a good thing. So that's the first thing. And then once you get into sort of other questions that I would ask, like when you're talking to somebody, what's your impression? Do you, how, how long does it take for them to start nodding their heads and be like, oh yeah, I get that. I, I get it. I get it. Does it take you 15 minutes or does it take you one minute? And, you know, somebody who's in, in any sort of sales capacity, this is a question I'd ask of somebody in a sales capacity. So if you're in a sales capacity, you know this. And if it's taking you 15 minutes, it hurts. And it will be obvious because you will feel very uncomfortable for that 15 minutes. And if it happens over and over again, that's like a clear warning sign that there's a, a positioning problem. Uh, sales likes to talk about the elevator pitch. Can you tell me what you do and why I need it in 30 to 45 seconds? So part of positioning is not actually just the elevator pitch, but like figuring out who you should be giving the elevator pitch to. So, right, if I sell um, bicycles for people who use wheelchairs, obviously, like, I, I should probably be talking to people who use wheelchairs because nobody else is going to care about my product. Does the elevator pitch matter for anybody else? Sort of. I mean, maybe I might say, oh, I know somebody who uses a wheelchair and I could connect you with them. But, like, meh, not really. The elevator pitch, it, you have to really think about, like, who is the audience? Who is the person who's going to see the most value in our thing? You know, cargo bikes. Sorry, I like bikes. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. <laughs> cargo bikes for people with a lot of kids. There's a lot of reasons you might use a cargo bike. Maybe you like to bike and you like to, you want to go to Costco and bring home 200 pounds of groceries. But that <laughs> that's not really that valuable. It's not as valuable as I want to bike with my four kids. And that's a good example, though, of there, there can be different values for an identical product, but you have to, and there can be different target markets. The key, especially when you're a smaller company, is thinking about who's going to get the most value out of your product. Like, what's the use case where you're providing the most value? I'm going to throw you a curveball here because I want to take this down another level. We've, we've talked about business and we've talked about open source. And I mean, we are a podcast for the enterprise open source space. So you are spot on having one foot in each because we, we, we try and tackle both. So let's, let's take this down another level. So what challenges are unique to companies that build paid for products off of open source? Yeah, this is an excellent question because... The sort of best practice around positioning, well, particularly if you have a startup, if you have a startup, you would want to position around one product. The problem is that if you're building a startup around an open source project, you by definition have two products. You have your open source project and you have whatever thing it is that somebody pays you for. And there's a lot of open source business models and each one has its like own little quirks, but 
if you have a support model, it's not exactly a product, but it's still, you have to think of them a little bit differently. So the kind of person and the kind of company that is cool with just downloading any old random open source project, doesn't need a support contract, is able, you know, is has the skills necessary to fix it themselves if something goes wrong. That is fundamentally not the same as some as a company who has a the means, b the need to know that there's somebody available 24/7 to support you. And the value is different too. It doesn't matter what your open source project does. The value that's provided uh, when you have just pure open source versus when you have supported open source is different. Also, you know, in this space, when when you're talking about companies that are building around um, open source projects, your most frequent competitor is going to be um, build it ourself, a DIY. And so the the trade offs and the way that your buyers are thinking about it when you're thinking, should we download this open source project or should we build it ourselves? Versus, should we get this support contract or should we build it ourselves? That's a different internal conversation that has to happen. That's really the difference. So, first of all, just to recap, the first challenge is that there's two things to position. So, you have to think about positioning both of them in the market uh, as well as how they relate to each other. And you have to be aware of how the different market, how different the target market is for each one of those things. I want to add one more thing. Sure. I am assuming that uh, because this is a best practice, that the company in question cares about growing the open source community and is not just doing open source as a marketing, like a marketing thing. Generally speaking, the best practice is like you have to be actually committed to making the open source project a success too. Right. And I've worked for, for two companies now that kind of straddle that line between supporting an open source community and an open source version of their product and also selling something. And it's, it's that value of the subscription that is critical when trying to position yourself as a viable alternative to a company. Because I could just as easily download the community edition of a piece of software and run it. But if I'm a busy systems administrator, especially in a post-COVID era where I've got four kids at home, I've got a spouse at home, I've got better things to do with my time. As a recovering systems administrator, I can I just I want to see us move past this idea that we have to somehow punish ourselves by manually managing a thousand servers by hand. It's just not I've got better things to do with my time. My, we're getting ready to put uh, my son into kindergarten here this fall, and I'd rather be there and be a part of that and, and go to teachers teachers meetings and that kind of thing than manually update one line of code on one text file across a thousand servers. I've got better things to do. Being able to position your product versus the open source project is is very hard, especially considering in both these jobs, I've been an open source advocate first and, and an employee second. It's difficult to do. And I went on a rabbit trail because I had a point and I forgot what it was. <laughs> well, I, I can definitely pick up your rabbit trail. Oh, good. Because I lost it. Because <laughs> I'm really glad you brought up the idea of, of manually doing doing it. A, a lot of companies in this space get really uh, freaked out about their competitor, like some other startup uh, that does something that's that's similar. And usually, like, I, I don't care what you do. If you work in the software engineering general space, your competitors are going to be an open source project 
doing it ourselves, keep doing it manually, hire another engineer, or just totally ignore the problem. So that's like, that's what, if it's like a compliance or security thing, let's just be honest that like the, your competitive alternative is like cross your fingers. Yeah. And, and I've been in that position. That's, that's always fun. Have the auditor come into the office and say, so what happens if XYZ happens? That did kind of put me back on, you, you helped me find my rabbit trail again. So I appreciate that. <laughs> my, my spouse does her best, but uh, not, not always successful. But uh, just coming from having seen both sides of using a community edition versus a paid product, and there being pros and cons to both, the problem is you, you have to be genuine when you're trying to straddle that line, when you're trying to, from a sales perspective, when you're trying to make a sale, you have to be sure that your, that your motivations, that your justifications, your subscription are worthwhile. Because if your organization has a reputation or even looks like they're just trying to profiteer off of an open source project, and the health of that project isn't a concern, then people are going to figure that out very, very quickly. The IT world and the open source community is very, very sensitive, especially over the past few years where we've had these different types of licensing come up. It is so important that if you're going to position your, your product around an open source project to genuinely have that, that love and that care for the open source community and the open source project that basically drives your development process forward. Yeah. And I think another challenge in this particular space is that every company who's building even a closed source, even if you don't have an, a software engineer or a, an open source project, but every company that's that's in this sort of software engineering space has a balancing act to to do, and especially those that are building around an open source project. So the balancing act uh, in terms of positioning and in terms of a messaging sort of communication is there's a balancing act between how much you focus on sort of high level business and how technical you get. And you can't go too far in either direction. And that's one of the biggest challenges because you don't want to sound, it doesn't, you don't want it to sound like BS. And it's going to sound like BS if you go like real high level, but you can't totally take your eyes off of the high level benefits of things like productivity or increased security or whatever it is, but you can't go too deep into the technical weeds to talk about like this makes it easier to edit YAML files or whatever. So there's that balancing act. And then yes, there's the the balancing act of like, if you're building around an open source uh, project, you have to be committed to making the open source project successful and not just using it as a lead magnet. It's not part of your funnel. I think that's a big that's a big misconception. Like your open source project is not part of your funnel because it's a different person who use who's going to want to use the open source project. If you're like high, highly regulated industry, you have like some SLO that you need to, that's like, you know, business critical that you keep, like you you need to know that you can get that support and that some expert is going to be, you know, on the line for you. But if you're just like a person working on a hobby project, you don't have the money to pay for the support and you don't want it. You just want to download your open source project. It's it's often, you know, different personas. So don't think of your open source project as like the top of your marketing funnel. Yeah, that's awesome. I would almost think that it could be part of a bridge to that funnel. Because I've seen, I've, I've consulted with companies that started out small, they hit their stride, and all of a sudden they exploded in size. And they don't have time or the expertise 
to sit there and manage an open source project anymore. And they'd much rather be able to, to kind of pass that buck along and say, okay, we're going to pay you to maintain XYZ systems. And if they break, I'm on the phone talking to you because that's not my focus anymore. That was my focus. We got a good foundation, but now we're too big. So now I'm looking at scale. I'm looking at at adding functionality. So I need to be able to call you to know that this function is going to work. And if it doesn't, I need you to be on the other end of that phone line. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true. But and and, you know, an open source project can also be like almost a free trial, too. I think with a situation where you're that you're talking about, like somebody, a company exploded in size. Well, they changed that company changed and they put themselves into a different type of market. They became a different type of consumer. And there's, it's still not really part of your funnel. It's just like they jumped funnels. <laughs> they, they jumped to the different product, you know, just like just because when you're 20 years old in college, you didn't buy a minivan doesn't mean that a minivan will never be appropriate for you. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But like the sports car isn't a funnel to get you to buy a minivan in the future. That's great. And that that really speaks to me because uh, when I was 29, I had a two-door sports car, sunroof, manual transmission, the whole nine yards. And now underneath my feet in our garage is a Buick that has third row of seating. So yeah, that analogy really speaks to me there. <laughs> I want to dive into that a little bit more, not not the minivan. This idea of changing funnels and, and changing kind of when, you're, you're, when your needs change. Because the industry has morphed so much over the past few years. It seems like the moment that Kubernetes hits GA, as soon as it went open source and people started to latch onto it, everything changed within a couple of years. I mean, Kubernetes is going to be, what, six years old this year? And yet it has had such a drastic effect on everything that we do. Because now everything's cloud, everything's Kubernetes. Is it possible to latch onto that marketing train and not have anything to do with Kubernetes or cloud at all? Right. So if it is BS, if you're selling a minivan, you don't want to latch it onto Kubernetes, right? So <laughs> the thing about Kubernetes is it, I'm not really qualified to say whether it'll be around in four or five years or not. Probably nobody is. But the, the fact of the matter is that, it, yes, it's kind of eating the world right now. And uh, one misconception about positioning is that it's set in stone. Like if we position around Kubernetes now, like what, what's going to happen in four years? Well, you don't know what's going to happen in four years, not just like there could be another pandemic, there could be a tsunami, there, uh, there's like a thousand scenarios that could happen, some related to the IT world, some totally unrelated, but that could impact. And so don't worry about what might happen in four years. You want to position for now. Yeah, you don't want to do like a major change in positioning every six months. That would, you would end up wasting a lot of time. <laughs> But you mm -hmm. also don't want to think that your positioning can never change. I mean, do you think Apple's positioning is the same as when it first started? Do you think Facebook's positioning is the same when it first started? No, it's not. So don't get too hung up on, you know, should we, what happens if, you know, Kubernetes goes away? Uh, the only thing is, like, if you really don't have anything to do with Kubernetes, like, no, don't, don't position around Kubernetes. If not every single thing related to the cloud is going to be also related to Kubernetes. If you are not related to the cloud, don't position around cloud. You know, you don't want your positioning to be BS. But if there is a really important trend that people are talking about a lot, then if you are legitimately connected to said trend, you should call it out. So the, the current trend that, that we get asked a, a lot about 
is multi-cloud. And we've actually had a number of episodes, guests and interviews uh, about this topic. So we, we've kind of hinted at marketing isn't always, isn't always directly reflective of, of what it's trying to accomplish. So my, my question to you is, multi-cloud a pipe dream or is it a necessity? Do you have an opinion? This seems to get our uh, audience riled up quite a bit. Yeah. And this is definitely Chris's area of expertise too uh, from MIST. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I would say about multi-cloud is actually what I would say about a lot of uh, sort of trendy things. Uh, I mean, even Kubernetes, obviously. Service Mesh is another one that comes up. Mm -hmm. Everything is a buzzword now. Yes. So anything that, that seems buzzwordy, this is what I would say. It is going to be appropriate for some people and it's going to be not appropriate for other people. And you should always evaluate what are our goals for, for doing thing? What are, what are our goals for being in multiple environments? What are our goals for using a service mesh? What are our goals for migrating everything into containers and using Kubernetes? You need to think about what, what goal you're trying to achieve. Ultimately, ideally, what business goal? So not just like, oh, this is this seems like a really great technical challenge and I think it'd be really cool to tackle. Like that's that's not actually a legitimate business reason to to do something. So and see, you know, does this make sense for your very specific situation? All of those technologies, all of those things that I mentioned and everything that I didn't mention has some very legitimate use case. But there are also undoubtedly people out there that are adding complexity and spending a lot of money uh, to do things that ultimately don't build any value for their for their company. And that's that's what you have to think about. Like, what's our goal in doing this? And, you know, is is it to you know, be able to do a, a talk about how cool our process is? Or is it because we have a really legitimate business need that that we've, you know, concretely identified? And for multi-cloud, like, there's some actually some really interesting ways to use multi-cloud. Sometimes it's it really can't be avoided. I mean, like some of the legal and compliance uh, issues around data locality, like you can't get around that if you're uh, processing sensitive data and it needs to be stored in, you know, a, a particular country you might not be able to get around that, in which case, yeah, you need multi-cloud. There's kind of no way to argue, but not everybody does. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait, are you saying that I shouldn't build my brand new open source project on a cloud-based multi-cloud hybrid Kubernetes instance just because then I can add all of those buzzwords into my product description? I don't know if we can continue this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, simplicity, simplicity, that's what... Whether you're building technology or a marketing message, it's got to be simple. That's, yeah, that's that's great. And I think that's a, a great place to kind of wrap up our conversation today. Is, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to uh, you'd like to mention before we uh, before we close out? No, I think this is good. I'll mention, you know, if you're interested in positioning and open source, you can go to my website, which you can get to either my name, which is emilyomir.com or also positioningopensource.com will take you directly to my blog. The Business of Cloud Native will also take you to my podcast, which is The Business of Cloud Native. And I like to talk about business reasons for using Cloud Native. I talk a lot to people in the Kubernetes ecosystem, talk to end users. I've talked to some open source project maintainers about positioning their projects and how they've evolved over the years. So yeah, that's I'll, I'll make that plug and that's about it. Definitely. This was your, your segment. So we'll, we'll definitely have links to all of Emily's contact information, her website, her blog, her podcast, and anything else we can dig up. And we'll put all of that in, into the show notes. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I, I really appreciate uh, 
sorry, Brandon couldn't make it today, but I'm really glad that uh, you came on and we got to chat a little bit about uh, positioning and, and marketing. I, I think it's really important, but it's not the first thing that an open source maintainer thinks about for sure. It's how do I get, how do I fill these bug requests? How do I, how do I get this new feature working? So many of those things could, you could add additional eyes, extra hands on keyboards if you have the positioning right. So I, I think it's very important to, to take a look at this. And I'm really glad you came on and shared your, your experiences. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Drop an email to contact at sudo.show or find this episode's thread at sudo.show slash discuss. If you haven't yet, head over to sudo.show slash swag to grab your essential sudo merch. If you would like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at sudo.show and on social media at sudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. You can follow Brandon on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or his website at open-tech.net. You can follow me at ITGuyEric or on itguyeric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.